Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg. To all of you Spaceburgers out there, I'm David Huntsberger, and if you happen to be in Los Angeles this Sunday, the Junk Show returns to the Copper Still, which is a great little El Salvadoran restaurant on Beverly Boulevard, and the show is at 8 p.m. If you like music and comedy, animation, magic, things like that, stop on by, grab a poster while you're there. Now, let's check in with a citizen of planet Earth. Well, Bob Picardo, it's nice to talk to you. And I suppose before we start, I should uh, mention and acknowledge and say thanks to our mutual friend, Danielle Gunn, who's been very good to this show and put us in touch. Um, I would assume because you share a relationship uh, by both working for the Planetary Society and you're on the board there. Uh, That's right. Uh, Danielle is our social media genius and uh, she did put us in touch with each other i i served on the advisory council of planetary society since the late 90s when star trek voyager was on the air and i was approached by the then two surviving members bruce murray and lewis friedman the third i I don't mean surviving members surviving founders of the society in 1980 it was co-founded by those two gentlemen along with carl sagan um, so they asked me first to do a fundraiser. Uh, I believe the uh, excuse for the fundraiser, it was a landmark birthday for the great Ray Bradbury, I believe his 70th birthday. Uh, it was in the late 90s. Um, people like Charlton Heston, Tim Russ, John Reese davies uh, John Delancey. So there were several Star Trek colleagues along with other famous people that did readings uh, from Ray Bradbury's uh, incredible work. And then I served uh, throughout uh, the intervening years. I was an advisory council member. I often spearheaded academic uh, challenges, or uh, I guess, um, yeah, I guess I would say academic challenges, just basically things for young people to get them interested in science and space exploration, projects like Red Rover and Red Rover Goes to Mars. And then about two years ago, uh, our current CEO and a longtime friend of mine, Bill Nye, the science guy, asked me to join the advisory, I'm sorry, the executive board, uh, which I now serve on. It's, it's just, it's such a cool trajectory, you know, going from, I guess, getting your original start. Um, and I read a little bit about, you know, studying acting at Yale, which isn't initially what you went there to study. And then it seems like having a passion for exploration, you really couldn't have aligned yourself and or had more uh, things in your career that are synonymous with that, getting into Star Trek or like one of my personal favorites, Inner Space, uh, exploring the, both the macro and the micro elements of the world. And I'm just curious how that feels. Was that like a conscientious thing or were there a series of kind of, um, oh, it's just lucky to, to get it to be involved in this? Or how did those all uh, come together? Well, um, my childhood ambition was to become a doctor. Um, I've had a lifelong passion for science, particularly uh, the life sciences, and um, I really, I really feel that um, working on Star Trek as an actor. I, I guess I left out the phase where I said that my my other uh, great hobby in high school and college was acting in the school plays. And at one point, I had an experience at Yale with a student production that kind of turned my head around and made me think that I wanted to um, pursue that as a career. But as I said, science was my first love ahead of performing. <laughs> so being cast on a Star Trek series in a, in a uh, curious but understandable way has brought me back to science. When you work on Star Trek, you are suddenly thrown in the company of all of these amazing people that have been inspired by Star Trek and other science fiction throughout their lives. I, I found myself, you know, at a, at a Star Trek anniversary 
convention, I think it was the 30th anniversary of the premiere of the original series, I found myself sitting on stage with five men who walked on the moon. <laughs> and uh, constantly, Star Trek puts you in the company of uh, astronauts, scientists, engineers, uh, astrophysicists, uh, who were inspired as kids uh, to go into whatever aspect of science and exploration they went into by watching Star Trek. So they look to you, even though you're just an actor who's acting on that series, they look to you in a way as, as part of that inspiration to them. So I, in the, in the company of these people, I have obviously reinvigorated my interest in science and, and it's really been the, the, uh, the inception of my particular passion for space exploration. I, I caught the fever. I didn't grow up with a, I didn't grow <laughs> up with a, the, the thrill of, uh, of uh, futurism and space, but I really captured it from the people that I've had the pleasure of meeting and talking to who had it from a young age. Yeah, I think that intersection of how art influences what we then research and try to pursue and vice versa. We're seeing things we can do and then in that sort of inspire, say, you know, children or whoever else to be sort of blown away and think, well, what else could we do? And that how they swirl together. And, and that's been happening for a long time, you know, with going back to people like you mentioned, like Ray Bradbury and his imagination inspiring actual physicists and or, um, you know, astronauts who are like, I want to do that. And when you mentioned before, you know, with the Planetary Society and bringing in children, and does it feel more necessary than than you remember, or is that just are we are we kind of thinking right now as a culture, as a society, that it's more dire than it is that people aren't as interested in, in science and, and as um, exposed or enthusiastic? Well, um, we're living in a time where. Uh, Science is being challenged, where the whole concept of science, of you know, collecting data, of testing things, of analyzing the data, making conclusions, and making you know hypotheses as to what we need to do to alter the data, in order to, you know, in order to, to better man's chances for a for a healthy and positive future that is posited in shows like Star Trek. So. Um, uh, because we, we're living in a time when science is being attacked and diminished, that I do think it is more important than ever to support young people's interest in, in science, technology, engineering, and math, mm-hmm. and, and to encourage it. And to say, even to present an example like myself, someone who has is, who is really pursued the arts uh, professionally, throughout his life, but to say, hey, I love this as well, and I believe in the importance of this as well, and I'm willing to donate a significant amount of my uh, discretionary time to doing work for this incredible nonprofit, the Planetary Society, the world's leading uh, space uh, nonprofit, you know, that, that is dedicated to, to capture and excite the public interest in our future in space exploration. It is, you know, it is, uh, it, it's, it's a great organization. We're led by Bill Nye, who is, uh, who represents to so many people under 40 um, as, a, <laughs> as a, a major uh, influence in their lives from his, you know, incredible career as a, uh, a, a science educator. Um, from his famous uh, series, Bill Nye, the Science Guy. And now, Bill, who's transitioned, you know, from being someone who who really spoke uh, initially to young people to, to become a, a kind of a major voice in... Um, in the uh, in, in the support of, uh, of uh, science education... Um, but most importantly, I, I guess, in uh, major voice in all of the the major issues of our time, like um, uh, 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's uh, it's probably too obvious to mention, but uh, you know about climate change and all of the different things in our present society that are the science of which is pretty much settled with you know 97% of scientists agreeing on uh, man's uh, man's influence in, in um, creating global climate change and yet all of that is still being challenged because issues that are settled science are still being used as political football because because the conclusions <laughs> Of that science uh, are inimical to certain long-time, very powerful industries. So it's uh, it's great to uh, to be associated not only with the Planetary Society, which is which of which Bill is the CEO, but the Planetary Society, of course, is a nonpartisan nonprofit, um, and yet uh, Bill has his uh, identity as our, our our leader at the Planetary Society. Uh, which is uh, apolitical, but also his his personal identity as a, as a uh, as an American citizen um, who is who speaks up on a number of issues uh, beyond space exploration that are uh, that are very important for our future on the planet, and um, also people like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who served on the board for many years, although he's recently. Um, stepped back uh, because of his passion for other uh, projects and, and just how busy he is. He's now sort of uh, uh, taken a leave from the executive board. Um, and, and some really other uh, great minds, great scientists, uh, people very high up in industry. Uh, uh, we have a, um, Wally Hooser, who's a, 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 a philanthropist and a medical doctor. Radiologists. So we have just a really interesting group of people, and I'm always very excited to sit around the table with these great minds and talk about how we can be uh, a force for good um, uh, for the you know for the public interest and awareness in our future in space. You can listen to the continuation of that chat in the uh, Patreon. And thanks again to Bob Picardo. If you don't um, belong to and or are not familiar with the Planetary Society, I highly recommend it, planetary.org. And Bob sends out uh, a newsletter and does a, a video uh, check-in that I think he mentions later on in the chat. Well worth it. And you can follow him on Twitter. And just a genuinely pleasant pleasant guy and we had some issues with the sound recording app and he was so polite and patient and um, I felt like a real heel having to go all right I'll call you right back let's try this again so I don't know what was happening with that but if you are familiar with a better call recording application send me a, a message pings at the space cave I'd greatly appreciate it still trying to figure out the best way to do that whether it's through Skype or um, on the phone. I don't have FaceTime, and I've heard that's a pretty good one. So if there's another one, perhaps, outside of that that you know that's good, let me know. The current one, I am not thrilled with. But he was, like I said, very, very polite. So thanks again to Bob Picardo. And again, that's planetary.org. Check it out and get involved in um, in humans exploring the vast reaches. Speaking of which, my guest for the Hardcore chatting. The main, the bulk of the series this week is uh, David Hitt, who writes about these sorts of things, and he uh, has written several books. He lives in Huntsville, Alabama, which we'll talk about, and he is on this show as a guest, purely independent, representing only himself. Any affiliation with any government entity is, um, all I'm saying is don't sue us. Don't sue him. Don't sue me. He's speaking on behalf of himself, his views and opinions he <laughs> he's presenting do not in any way reflect upon any government entity that he might be associated with. So please don't sue us. I don't think he says anything too outrageous or outlandish or even controversial, but if for some reason you felt that way, he's just here talking um, through Skype which, uh, depending on how this sounds, is thanks to Dan for making it sound good because we had a few little glitches and issues with the Skype as well. So still working on the best way to figure out how to communicate with people who are not in my vicinity. If you have an alternative to Skype and or that it's not FaceTime, let me know as well. We can figure out how to get the sound quality even better 
still working on those sorts of things. But thanks to those of you who do support the show through Patreon, because it does help with Skype credit and things like that, buying music, buying beer, web hosting, all that. So you can listen to bonus things. The Patreon's a great way to do that. Anyway, as I mentioned, our guest, so excited to chat with him, a real space nut, real enthusiast about it. And uh, it, it just resonates as he talks. You can hear it. It's really, I love when people have that level of passion about what they do and seem to be thrilled to just get up and go do what they do every day. So without any more to that, let's get into it. This is, we had to source some beer. We ended up going with something from Cigar City, the Madura Brown Ale. Um, if you get some yourself, try it out. Let me know what you think. I thought it was great. Here is uh, part one with David Hitt. Hello, David Hitt. Can you hear me? Yes. How are you doing, sir? Good. How are you? I don't have my um, video one on. I can see you. Um, I can oh, turn my video okay. on if you on if you like. I feel like sometimes the um, the audio lags a little bit, and then it can be sort of confusing. But we can do the video if you, if you'd like. It's up to you. How do I? No. no. Okay. That's that's fine. <laughs> I, like I said, I don't Skype much, so, uh, <laughs> so I was trying to be overprepared. So. Oh, okay. No, it sounds great on your end. The only thing that happens on my end on occasion is there'll be these little like lapses, and so far it, it has avoided that, which is great. And usually Dan can scrub them out. So, um, hopefully we'll we'll be all right. If if for some reason you're not hearing me or, or I'm not hearing you, then there's this that always that awkward kind of Skype where you have to wait till the person's done talking and then go, um, I didn't hear any of that. I can hear you fine. Okay, and I can hear you can as Can you well. hear me? Yeah, I can hear you great. Um, Wonderful. We'll get to it. I thought before we start, I would crack open this um, Madura Brown Ale. If mm-hmm. you, uh, named after a dark cigar wrapper, Madura Brown Ale boasts notes of semi-sweet chocolate, toffee, and hints of fresh coffee. Complex and full-bodied, our multi-forward ale, or malt-forward ale is brewed with flaked oats to add depth of character. Ooh, flaked oats. I got it in can form on my end, so I'm uh, doing some Foley work here with sound. Ooh, could you hear that? Very nice, yes. Okay, great. Well, I suppose before we get started, we should probably give a little bit of a tip of the cap to our mutual friend, uh, Dan Pritchard, who not only helps put the show together, but was either familiar with you or you guys are are friendly. I, I wasn't quite sure. Okay, well, so really dumb question then. Is Dan the Dan or are there two Dans? Dan is the Dan from, from the show, yeah, who I'm always saying thanks to and, and that sort of thing. I had never made that connection. <laughs> oh, okay. So he, he must have just... I, how, did, how was he familiar with you? So just through... Okay, so Dan as the Dan I knew of as... As my friend Jason Sims has had several podcasts and Dan was his producer. And so I knew that Jason had a Dan in Australia. I knew this this unrelated Dan Pritchard guy online and just through interactions, you know, on, on, on social media, but had somehow failed to connect that that this Dan was Jason's Dan, but then I knew he was your Dan. So I didn't know I didn't realize that all Dan's we're part of the uh, unified Dan theory. <laughs> there is it's so, a pretty complex. Well, so huge, huge shout out to Dan. Now that I know that there is just the Dan. Yeah, we're getting ever so close to to really solving the unified Dan theory, and <laughs> today is a monumental step in doing just that. I think that was the uh, the one thing that vexed Einstein. He was he was never able to uh, to close out the unified Dan theory. <laughs> Maybe Dan's a lot like the universe where he doesn't realize how complex he's making it for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> if we could, if the universe could only just take a note from that and be like, oh, hey, sorry, guys. I, I apologize. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, if, the, uh, if the universe produced podcasts half as well, we'd be uh, in good shape. That's true. Yeah, Dan's very efficient. And um, hello to Dan. And uh, how's, have, have you sampled the uh, Madura Brown yet from Cigar City Brewing? I have. So this is my first time having this, and uh, it, it is rather agreeable. I like it. It's really warm yeah. here today, and I've got the lights down and a fan going. And um, I don't know why I sometimes associate a brown ale with just being a little heavy sometimes for the heat, but um, it, it's really crisp and refreshing. All those notes they mentioned, I think I can taste them. The malt forward, I get that. 
Um, but it feels, I, I feel like it's not as temperature dependent as sometimes I associate with, with darker beers. Okay. <laughs> I will, uh, I'll allow that. That's as, um, so uh, what would you call it? Like, um, being an aficionado, I suppose, of beer as I get, I think it has very little to do with the actual brewing and more about just me and how I like to imbibe it. But, um, anyway, I'm got our beers open we're chatting through technology through this digital space all these little waveforms and 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 ones and zeros being transferred from Huntsville Alabama to here in the space cave and yes you're originally from there but then you've also you've you've the little bit i know about you as you have published books and just seemingly been a lifelong fan of the space program and shuttles maybe in particular, and now you have kind of this dream job of, of working at NASA down there in Huntsville. Does that sound roughly appropriate? That's roughly appropriate. I'm from Huntsville originally, and so kind of grew up in the uh, the midst of the Rocket City and living in the shadow of giant rockets and everything. And for the longest time, thought that, that was going to be what I was going to do what I grew up, and uh, somehow accidentally ended up in journalism instead. And so Wandered around the state of Mississippi for 10 years working at small town weekly newspapers until I realized that uh, what I thought was an either or, you either do this communication sort of thing or you do this space sort of thing, really was a distinction that didn't exist. So I had the opportunity to come back home to Huntsville and start working as a uh, contractor at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center doing education work originally. And so, like you say, kind of living the dream. So that's amazing that it, I love, and that seemingly has happened a number of times on this podcast where people go, yeah, I didn't realize this was a possibility. And now kind of all these things have dovetailed or sort of folded together to create this ideal scenario. Uh, when you say you came back and were teaching, like to go from journalism and kind of, were you like a beat writer, like out covering the beats in, in Mississippi, like that sort of journalism? Yeah, so I was actually from a reporter to a to the editor for a period of, of a few months. I was the editor of the uh, Webster Progress Times newspaper in Eupora, Mississippi. So just kind of doing out on the streets. Of course, you work at a uh, at a small town weekly newspaper like that. The distinctions that exist in you know your major metro dailies just aren't there. So when I was in Eupora, I was. Reporter, editor, layout, ad salesperson, sports reporter, photographer. I mean, there was <laughs> there was basically nothing that I wasn't, but it was incredibly good experience for that very reason. Yeah, it's, it sounds a lot like uh, like almost like a school newspaper where you just have such a bare bones staff, and in reality, you are. Oh, the staff. even even I was never part of a school newspaper that didn't have a much larger staff than, <laughs> than any of the papers I worked at professionally. Was it so? Were there so few people that you didn't even have someone you could pretend to delegate responsibilities to? Like you could turn someone, hey, I need some photographs of that high school football game, but instead it was just you climbing in your car, like I got it. Well, so the fun thing was, you know, so I in, in my office in Eupora, there was myself and, and two ladies that worked there and they kind of handled, you know, one was the office manager and just handled the, the daily ins and out of the people coming in and out of the office. One helped some with the uh, with the advertising side of things, the classifieds, that sort of thing. I have always been, you know, just a complete nerd. And so I know enough about football to, to watch it, but have never known enough to write about it. Um <laughs> Thankfully, that's the sort of thing that in your community, you're going to have like that guy that like, hey, would you like to be the sports reporter for the Webster Progress Time? You know, we'll get you into the games for free. You'll have your camera. You are, you know, the local sports guy. And that's a dream come true. So usually I got that service for free just because somebody was so excited that, yeah, I get to be that guy. <laughs> that sounds almost like a, an indie movie or even maybe a television show about a newspaper that's really just run out of a guy asking his friends for favors. Like, hey, you like mysteries? Would you want to go cover this uh, break-in across town? Sure. <laughs> you like sports? You want to go get into the game for free? All right. Where, did people have to have some credentials, or could you really just be like, yeah, my friend Greg loves football. I'm sure he can <laughs> read and write English. Well, it's, you know, and, and everybody knows everybody. So, you know, they get credentials. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a big city thing. Oh yeah, sure you LA types worry about credentials. Hey, you poor you know that's 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 Joe, you know, yeah, I know his mom, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's good. Let him do it. So why do you even need to write about it if say like the whole town of Yupura is there? So now you're getting into, you know, the the philosophy of, of journalism to me. And this is <laughs> this is why 
newspapers are dying. And this is why newspapers are dying from the top down, why you're, you know, Huntsville, Alabama today, we have a three day a week newspaper. Mm-hmm. We cannot support ostensibly a daily newspaper in Huntsville, Alabama. Now, Decatur, Alabama, fourth the size has a daily. Coleman, Alabama, you know, a little better than a tenth the size has a daily paper. Huntsville doesn't. And that's because they lose that local angle. Uh, newspapers somewhere along the way, the, the bigger the, the newspaper, the more they felt like we need to compete against CNN. We need to compete against, you know, the, the big international news. The thing that newspapers can do better than any other institution on this planet is create content to hang on refrigerators. Mm-hmm. So the, it is important that the uh, the Webster Progress Times cover local football, because regardless of who was at the game, if the game went the way that you hoped it does, and, and, and you know, if your son, your daughter, your friend, your whoever was the one who made, you know, that play, even if you watched it, you need to cut it out and you need to hang it on your refrigerator. Absolutely. Growing up in Reno, Nevada, not the biggest city in the world, the biggest little city in the world, however. Uh, yeah, being in the in the Reno Gazette Journal, like if you got your picture in any way there, yeah, it was going up on the refrigerator. It was very much like a, it seemed, yes. no matter how small your city is comparatively compared to like LA or something like that, it seemed like a big, big deal. And in a lot of world to the world today, we're living in a uh, kind of a post-refrigerator era. You know, we, we don't do that, but in these small towns, that's very much... Um, Kind of a, a very important thing. That's that's a hub of the uh, of the community. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. We could get into a whole discussion there about when you watch the news and it's major thing, national thing, this thing, and this lady can't find her cat. And you're like, wait a second. How did that make yes. the news? When I started in Uport, we we were still doing the chicken dinner news column. There was a uh, you know each of these little towns, and so Eupora, the big city was a town of about 2000 when I was there. They were really hoping they were really hoping that in the census they would hit 2500 because that's the next level of being taken seriously, you know, like <laughs> as a uh, as a municipal institution if you got 2500, okay, now you're in this level. So, you know, you you you're the big deal now. Yeah. And Eupor is surrounded by these little communities that are, you know, maybe hundreds of people. And we had somebody in each of those communities who's writing the the local news and it literally was so-and-so's daughter was back for the weekend from mississippi state and they had this for lunch and had a happy reunion and then you know other family came and visited yeah i love that i think it's fantastic you you can't do that in you know in in a major metro daily but uh (laughs) but that's why you know I, i drove through um Ackerman, Mississippi, which was much smaller even than Eupora, and they still have a very active weekly newspaper that they can support because it cares about nothing but Ackerman, Mississippi. The rest of the world doesn't exist. The only thing they care about is what's going on in Choctaw County. I wish that uh, more municipalities behaved that way because to a certain degree with I mean, even if you eliminated Twitter, just the internet at large, or obviously, you know, television channels like the 24 hour news cycle, like, yeah, if you want to be connected to the global flow of things, that's a better resource. But to just know what's going on in your little community, it seems like when you're talking about the philosophy of of the newspaper and why they fail, you think, it seems like um, towns think they need to compete with CNN or things like that, and then therefore lose out on on the, uh, hey, this family had a... um, a potluck and the, this amount of people showed up and they raised this much money for the local softball team or something like that, a little more communal. Exactly. And that's the thing that the newspaper can do uniquely well and that no one else can do. It's, you know, it. <laughs> I, I can wax extremely philosophical about this. You know, you can get into, you know, Sun Tzu and the art of war and you don't fight on the other person's battlefield. But that's kind of what, you know, around the time of the Gulf War, around the time of, uh, of CNN, the newspaper industry just kind of felt this real desire to, you know what, we're going to go onto the enemy's field of advantage and we're going to fight them there instead of on the fields where they can't come. And, uh, you know, I, I would argue that looking back over the last 30 years, possibly a mistake. <laughs> oh, this is really fascinating. I hadn't really, because I guess when I watched the uh, Unabomber documentary and, you know, they had USA Today and the Washington Post, like, that were available in San Francisco, in addition to, like, the Chronicle, 
is that what you mean by going into the other person's battlefield that like newspapers would start infiltrating like here read this one this is the new york times this is the real newspaper you don't really need to hear about whoever's chicken coop got broken into over the weekend in your little town what you need to know about are these missiles that got fired well and not even between between newspapers so much as as cross media right you know if if i'm the newspaper and i'm covering the gulf war if i'm the newspaper and i'm covering you know the unabomber the reality is cnn is always going to get me that news sooner quicker more immediately than newspaper ever can right. i cannot win that fight yeah um and then today you know now man i don't want to have to wait for cnn to cover it i'm on twitter right you know i mean you can never with a publication hit that sort of immediacy yeah okay so sense. what are the things that you can do that they can't versus how do we compete on how do we fight on that battlefield because you're always going to lose on that battlefield hmm. and when you so when you came back to huntsville and got into teaching and you have this history and this uh you know uh, i guess experience in the journalism world what exa- how do you transition from that to teaching are you teaching how to cover events in journalism? well okay so, so so to clarify not teaching in 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 education so if you go to the uh the nasa homepage. You go there, there's a section for students, a section for educators. And so what I was doing when I came back, I was on a contract that was creating materials for teachers and edu- uh, I'm sorry, not for teachers and educators. That's that's redundant for uh, for educators and students, rather, is what I'm trying to say um, about NASA content. So I'm not the one actually engaging with the students, teaching the material. I'm part of the team that's uh, that's under contract to you know kind of arm and equip the teachers to um to teach this content themselves to students. So oh, okay. the, uh, the first website that I was involved in um, produced each week, we did two articles about NASA content, and then we had teachers on the team who um, are creating lesson plans based on that. So, you know, maybe here's a, uh, an upcoming launch, here's an upcoming mission, here's what's going on, you know, teachers, here's what's going on, what NASA's doing, and then here's how you can bring that into your classroom and make that sort of content relevant to your students with actual lessons that you can do that are going to meet the education standards that you need to meet. So instead of us asking you to somehow, you know, wedge this into your class, here's how we can help you do the things that you already need to do. (laughs) I have so many questions about, like, just the population of Huntsville in particular. And I noticed, I remember we've been sort of setting up this conversation for a few weeks and in the process trying to source some beers that were available to both you and I. And a number of the breweries down there were in some way named or affiliated with, like, rocketry of some sort. And I'm curious, like, if... yes. If the town is so synonymous with, does everyone walk around with just a general knowledge of rockets and launch procedures on a level that's probably a step or two higher than everyone else? (laughs) Uh, Certainly, as a community, we are much more aware. um, You know, I mean, no, I'm not going to go into Walmart and start asking people about, you know, C3 curves for uh, for trajectories (laughs) to the outer. Oh, you talking about C three curves? I'm glad you brought that up. I was just here to buy a rake. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, we so Huntsville was you know in in the in the 50s and 1960s, you know, gosh, what um, maybe at most a fourth the size that we are today. I would think probably um, even substantially less than that. So when you have the uh, the von Braun rocket team, the German rocket team here in Huntsville with the uh, initially the Army Ballistic Missile Agency and then NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center working on you know the Red Star, the, the Jupiter rocket that launched the uh, the first American satellite, the Redstone rocket that made Alan Shepard the first American in space, the Saturn V um, moon landing rockets. It really was at that point. This is this city. This is who we are. This is what we do. That's cool. It's still a uh, you know a, a very much a part of our identity. NASA um, still you know either directly or, or indirectly through its contractors, one of the you know the, the largest employers in the area. It's been really neat over the last ten years or so, ten fifteen years, to see what starts growing in that field. Right? I mean, when you when you till the earth with that sort of stuff, and then you plant in that. We're now a a leader in genetics research, kind of halfway randomly, except that, you know, hey, there's a lot of really smart people in Huntsville. <laughs> this would probably work there. We have uh, we have one of the largest research parks 
in the nation. And uh, and it's fun because, you know, so we're, we're beat by the research triangle area, except that we have the largest contiguous research park in the country. So, you know, by, by our standards, we're number one. But it's just <laughs> all of these businesses coming in, all of these, you know, research firms, high tech businesses coming in, taking advantage of, you know, at this point, over half a century of attracting and, and feeding a, uh, a very intelligent workforce. Yeah, it sounds like a little bit of a, I don't want to say like a utopia for the educated, but wandering around the streets and having just general chit chat or like small talk with people is probably a little different than maybe other areas of the world. And when you when you talk about a research park, how, how, what, how do you define that exactly? Is it an actual park or do you mean it in that like, is it more of like buildings and you can do research within them? Or I'm Yes, like, yes. So it's, it's you know, a, a parcel of land. Um, that is nothing but kind of these high tech, a lot of a lot of you know aerospace contractors, a lot of government contractors, but it's just purely, you know, there's no factories, nothing is built there. Oh, I see. It's purely these sorts of uh, you know, research technology, kind of STEM related industry that are all in this one area that you know, that somebody had the foresight, you know, again fifty years ago to say, I'm gonna buy up this land. And I'm going to dedicate it to this purpose and try and attract these businesses to be kind of all in this little community together. Yeah. Well, with your journalism background, and this is probably a reach or or I would imagine with the big companies that you're describing being there, they probably want to keep everything in-house or under their hat and not want to disclose all their research at all the time. But that would be a really interesting local newspaper that was covering, you know, your stuff with the rocket launches and what was next from the NASA side. But then also like, here's a new discovery that just happened. Here's what's new from this group. Here's what's new from this group. It would be as I just picturing being a child, like reading that newspaper there and having access to like the frontier of everything new every single day would be just mind blowing. It was really fun. I mean, I had the kind of this realization in high school Space is a local story, you know, I mean, right, something is happening in outer space. And that's covered by a local reporter with a local byline, you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's kind of unique. I mean, where we could say, you know, yeah, outer space is local news in Huntsville. <laughs> Yeah, as you all know, out there in the uh, Kuiper Belt, well, this happened this week, and everyone's like, nah, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 a neat place. It's a unique place. It's really cool. It's yeah, I'd love to. Hopefully, I'll make my way down there at some point and, and at least just check it out. But it'd be cool to do some shows. And what is the population overall in Huntsville? Huntsville. I gotta say it right. Huntsville. We are well, and 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 that's the beauty of being a, a town where nobody is from here, and it turns around. There's no right way to say it. Everybody's here from a different place and has their own accent. And so it's just kind of you, you bring your own local here. So however you say <laughs> it is the right way to say it, because you're okay. as much us as, as, as any of us are. Man, um, this is real Southern hospitality happening. <laughs> well, it's it's Huntsville's an interesting place in that it's located in, but not entirely of Alabama. I, uh, I had in my head once that I, I wanted to write a, a story of Huntsville called The Two Towers. Um, because the two, the two towers of Huntsville, kind of the, the, the two biggest structures that you can see from farthest away are a church bell tower and a Saturn V rocket. Mm-hmm. And like that right there is what you need to know about Huntsville. If you can, <laughs> if you can be okay with that, you know, if you can take that dichotomy of these two things are both kind of of this place, that's what this city is. It's, it's, it's in the South and will never not be. But at the same time, it's it's not, not your typical southern town. So it's it really is a very unique sort of place. So to answer your question, we are currently somewhere around uh, two hundred thousand people or so. So not a uh, not a large city by any means. And for me personally, I, I kind of like that. I like that you know my commute to work every morning is uh, is about fifteen minutes or so. Yeah, my uh, um, so there are growing benefits, up in- but at the same time, I can eat you know. It, <laughs> Whatever sort of cuisine I want, we probably have have it somewhere in Huntsville. So, you know, big <laughs> enough to, to have a decent offering of stuff, but small enough that life is still manageable. I, I mean, I grew up in Reno, which is a similar uh, population, but it all centers around gaming. So there's these casinos dominate everything, and the, the, mm-hmm. the people mm-hmm. who own the big houses on the in the foothills are all associated with the casinos in some way. 
but thinking about being a kid and kind of this stranger things kind of racing around on bikes with your with your pals and that you might actually see a rocket launch into space as you're going to the baseball field or something seems like a pretty idyllic situation to be in it's um you know and so huntsville we have have called ourselves the rocket city for uh you know since since the 50s since those early launches for the longest time you know for a period there you know particularly as the space shuttle was winding down you started kind of going, well, what does that mean? Well, what it means that we're the rocket city is that we're a smart place and we're a great place for, for all of these, you know, intelligent businesses like in genetics or in superconductors or whatever you to, to launch from here. And so, you know, it's, it's really exciting to me now that, that NASA's back in the big rocket business and, you know, we're, no, we're taking it back. You know, it's, it's <laughs> you can't use it. We're the rocket city because we build big rockets. Dang it. <laughs> that's, that's why and we're sticking with it. <laughs> build them, research them, launch them, study them. Um, probably, I mean, are private groups down there as well? Is it mostly just NASA? You know, so right now, commercial space, of course, everybody knows SpaceX. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of the, uh, they're the, uh, they're the sexiest in the, the commercial space field, but you have right now, you know, launching, um, cargo for NASA under the, uh, the commercial space contracts. SpaceX is doing that, but then also ULA, United Launch Alliance is doing that. And so their rockets, the, uh, the Atlas rockets, the Delta rockets are built, you know, 25, 25- miles down the road in, in Decatur, Alabama, um, Blue Origin, um, kind of the, the latest up-and-comer by um, Jeff Bezos, you know, of, of Amazon fame, um, <laughs> is, is locating a, an engine plant here. So you're starting to see uh, a lot of these companies circling um, kind of in the, the Huntsville, North Alabama area. Just by what you described, and I think everyone, maybe, uh, I guess in the Rocket City, everyone's probably a little bit more familiar with this, but for those of us out here in the West, and we're, you know, near JPL, and Virgin Galactic has, um, yes. they share space here in the Long Beach airport, and then SpaceX here as well, but it, it feels like maybe NASA still gets to kind of have the the main plans as far as, like, here is what we want to do overall going out and exploring space, but you guys are more than welcome to charge passengers for rides, and if you wouldn't mind hauling some stuff up there to the space station and or out to different um orbital fields for us is that kind of is that the infrastructure so to speak right now in the in the in the rocket landscape yeah very much i mean so you know so nasa is still both in terms of having the uh, plans having the vision um you know also in terms of of having the money since uh since you and i are the ones paying for that and, and so what you're seeing is a lot of this is just the agency kind of maturing and taking a, a very different sort of tack with, with how we go about doing business. You know, with the space shuttle, we're using the space shuttle to, uh, to fly to Earth orbit, to deliver cargo, to deliver astronauts to the International Space Station. What that means is NASA has that capability and only NASA has that capability, right? If, if you decided, you know, hey, I'd like to fly a space shuttle, well, you know. Sorry, you know, but that's that's not how space shuttle works. <laughs> so now, with the uh, with the end of the space shuttle program, um, you know, now NASA is, is taking the tack of okay, you know what? Instead of us building and operating the uh, the space shuttle, we're going to help these other companies. We're going to help SpaceX. We're going to fund SpaceX, Boeing, uh, Sierra Nevada, uh, Orbital ATK to provide this service for us. But what that means is okay now. NASA is, is paying SpaceX to do that, but if you, you know, would like to, uh, to take your mad podcasting money and, uh, you know what, I'm going to buy my own Dragon, you can do that. And do- NASA has the access but no longer ties up the, uh, the intellectual property, so it's available for others to use. So we're, uh, you know, we're, gosh, you know, watching the, uh, the movie 2001, you know, that I can remember as a, as a kid, like the first time I saw 2001 and you're, you're watching it and here's, you know, this Pan Am rocket plane going up to this Hilton space station. And there was never any doubt that that's where things are going. <laughs> but what, what Kubrick and Clark kind of forgot to include was the, and here's how you get there, you know? Yeah. So, so we're now the, Oh, Hey, you know what? Like, Things have to change in order to get to that world. And, uh, you know, and NASA kind of realizing we can't just sit back and wait for Hilton to show up. We can't just sit back and wait for Pan Am to show up. You know, this is going to have to be a collaboration. This is going to have to be kind of a, a dance between public and private interests to make this happen. 
And I guess with with the private interests, you know, in movies, there's always someone with you know nefarious aims or something like that. That likely it seems that if someone has made that much money and has the means, to like I want to venture into the space frontier, it's it's for a love of it or like the unknown or pioneering that sort of thing. But hypothetically, let's say that you and I strike it rich and get a hundred billion dollars. And decided, like, yeah, we want to get a rocket, and then we're going to take up a bunch of uh, nuclear devices and see if we can blow up the moon. Could NASA or other private groups ask us what we're doing, or is it the Wild West? We're like, don't look at my shuttle. I can take whatever the hell I want. Well, thankfully, you know, we, we still live in a world where uh, no matter how easy or hard it is to get rockets, getting the nuclear piece of that plan, <laughs> thankfully, has not been, you know— and I, 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 I love commercial industry. I love privatization. That's one of those things that, you know, I'm okay with that still being the uh, the, the province of nation states. No, I mean, so right now it's an area where the uh, where the government's still working to um, to kind of figure out what this does look like. I mean, even in the last few months, there's been discussion about where is the line between the FAA and commerce um, in terms of, yes, you've, you've now, you've taken your money, you've bought your rocket, you want to launch it. Somebody has to say, yay, verily, go. Um, how do we, as as uh, as a national government, want to uh, want to allocate that out? Yeah. And so, I, does it you know, feel we're, like we're at an exciting time right now where the capability is growing? You know, just staying just around where you know the the regulation is. You know, they're having to kind of make the rules up as they go to some extent. That's yeah. exactly how I think of it, that like we're, if it's an envelope or a threshold or whatever, we're pushed right up to the edge of it where like our means don't outreach our production so that we're always like, oh, we have enough money to get this done. Let's really consolidate everything and try to do this. See if we can land this, see if we can launch this, see if we can haul this, etc. But it seems like the Wright brothers to a certain degree where once it becomes more accessible and they've got it figured out, as is the case with everything, you have little kids setting up their Christmas toys the day after and ah, it's taking forever to click the tracks together. But then within a few hours, like the cars are on the track and they are racing around it and like, oh, this is easy. We figured it out. It seems like maybe that could happen with this. And then what do you do if it if you do start to have all of those uncertain like kind of gray areas where would there have to be policy put in place and who would organize that who would who would have it's such a you know at least on a a spherical place like we live now you can say here's a nation here's the outline of it here's where the border of this is with that states the same way but in space there aren't even like oceans or anything to break it up like how on earth or that's a hilarious way to say it. How in space <laughs> would we possibly have jurisdiction and, and rules and all that? Would it just go down to like celestial bodies? Or I mean, is that way, way out there still? Well, so there's, there's a group today that's kind of pushing that as Guardia. And and I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I'm, I'm aware of this conversation. I am aware that this exists. I am not an expert. I've not been following it. I'm just kind of, you know, every once in a while, see the, uh, you know, see the, the the headlines on Twitter and in my news digest. And, oh, okay, that's 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 interesting. But they are setting up. They are calling it the first space nation, hmm. and you can become a citizen of this space nation. Um, you're not going to live there, but even today on Earth, it's possible to be, you know, an expatriate citizen of a country that you don't live in. You don't have to live in a country to. To, uh, to be a citizen of it. So, okay, so can we apply that to space and say there is this place in space, and even if you are not currently physically present there, you can be a citizen of that, and then because of that, you are now subject to the laws associated with being a citizen of space country. <laughs> yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, okay, you know, no, nobody has made the rules yet for... <laughs> The people that say I'm a citizen of space country, you know, we, we've not <laughs> taken that seriously as a possibility in, in 2018. It seems to me and, like, uh, it so, might, it might be worth like, say someone came to you and said, Hey, we're offering basically you, you can have a passport dual citizenship. You got to get almost like black Panther or something you got, or like racehorses where you get the tattoo on the inside of your lip. And if you should ever find yourself wanting to get into the space country, present your passport, show the tattoo, you're good. And then you'd say, well, I want to look over your uh, constitution a little bit first. I want to make sure that I'm not entering into some sort of servitude and or that you guys still have freedom of speech, et cetera. And they go, yeah, yeah, we'll let you look that over. Would it, Even though it seems like a joke right now and it's such a silly novelty thing, like, yeah, I got this dumb tattoo. Should things ever get nuts? 
Would you do it just on the off chance that like the Earth kind of depletes its resources in our lifetime and shuttles are going up and the space country folk have managed to procure one and they're like, yeah, luckily our citizenship is really low. So if you got your passport in hand and you and I would show up and go, look, we got the tattoo and off we go. Are, is that how silly it seems? It seems just like playing house or is this something that maybe would have some actual practical application in the future? Well, so right now, my impression is right now it's more of a question of can, can I declare myself a resident of space for tax purposes? You know, I mean, it's it, <laughs> it's, it's kind of more the, the immediate. And so, you know, if I sign up for this today, does that mean that I'm going to be in jail next week for for being part of, you know, tax evasion land? Um, in which case, I'm, no, I'm, I'm probably not. Gosh, you know, I mean, that's an excellent question because – Necessity is the mother of invention, right? I mean, what would it take to do that sort of thing? What would it take from from where we're sitting today? You know, I I, I love going out and um and and talking to school kids because I love the questions that they ask because they're not they're not limited by how you're supposed to think about this, right? Mm-hmm. And so they'll they'll get into just these incredibly crazy hypotheticals. And I, I love, you know, being at the front of the room and they're asking me these questions. And, uh, and I said, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that, right? You're going to tell me the answer to that. This is one that, you know, what what's inside a black hole? I, I'm not going to tell you. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to do what I can in my lifetime to lay the groundwork for you in your lifetime to answer that question. And then you can come back and tell me what you found out. I, I, I kind of feel, I kind of feel right now the same way about colonization, right? I mean, that we're not going to be the ones doing that, that we're going to be the ones creating the foundation that that's going to be built on. Mm -hmm. That's sitting here today in 2018. Now, you know, come August, somebody discovers the comet that's, uh, that's going to end all life on Earth in 2025, the answer to that cha- question changes very rapidly, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. what, what, what will we do and what could we do, you know, become two very different answers. And uh, so I suspect that I have reached the point in my life where I'm very content that, um, you know what, I'm, I'm never leaving this planet. That's, uh, that's, that's not going to happen for me. <laughs> um, but at the same time, but, you know, if it ever did happen, I'd be okay with that. I have a book that was written in, I want to say, 1958 called Your Trip into Outer Space. And it's all about the coming space age, right? This is around the time of Sputnik. No human being has been in space yet. But this guy sat down and, and he's prescient enough to realize this is about to happen, right? I mean, we were about to enter an era when human beings are going to be traveling into space. And uh, and he goes on about, you know, where we are now and what's going on and what satellites are going to look like and spaceships are going to look like. And, you know, and then what it's going to look like when human beings start going into space. And then towards the end, he writes this really kind of forward leaning, really out there sort of stuff. Like, for example, one day humans could walk on the moon, possibly by the year 2000 (laughs) and like this guy's sitting there and he's like making this bold prediction like i really think this could happen that by the year 2000 you know i mean in the next half century human beings could walk on the moon and then within like what the next decade he's yeah it's right there i mean it's right (laughs) right around the corner yeah but this guy who knows enough about this field to write a book about it has no clue and (laughs) so you know, I, I keep a copy of that book because it's a constant reminder to me that we know nothing. You know, I mean, I can tell you, you know, what's it, what's it going to take to get to Mars? You know, oh, OK, OK, here's a here's a plan for, you know, for what it would take for, for human beings to be walking on Mars. Knowing that, you know what, tomorrow somebody comes in and says, hey, guess what I invented? And all bets are off. And that's the era that we're living in. You know, I mean, we, we take for granted now that technology is going to be completely different now year you know millennia of human existence where what's next year going to look like well last year you know that we now expect life is going to be completely different next year yeah yeah i i um, I was talking to a friend of mine a guy i've had on this podcast actually and uh he was saying that that's kind of one of the thoughts with within kind of the math community or the uh, machine learning is that there there is this not necessarily a fear but like a healthy sort of like understanding that AI could just be 
could change instantly if it's some rogue, if it's just some person kind of out on their own, doing their own research that solves it. And that could happen any day. So we live at a time where like that could change any day. Or like you said, like, hey, I figured out how we can go to Mars instantly. We don't have to worry about our resources and it's not going to be nearly as expensive. Dramatically changes everything we think about that. And so that like what we were talking about of this nation being out there in space and having to choose whether you want to go live there or stay here seems so absurdly foreign at this point and something that's like that's a thousand years away but what if we do have to kind of prepare ourselves for in our in our lifetimes to to be like yeah my my um my niece is going to work uh on one of the moons of saturn and that's gonna be okay when i was working in uh when i was you know on my contract supporting NASA education I was talking to a friend of mine who runs a, uh, a, a space website. I'll, I'll give him a shout out, collectspace.com. He, he's a space advocate guy, does a lot of space writing. And, and I was talking to him and I said, you realize that you and I, our jobs are to work ourselves out of a job, right? I mean, <laughs> we are, at the time, we're kind of, you know, space advocates professionally. You know, we're going around, around, hey, let me tell you about space. Let me tell you about how exciting space is. Let me tell you about, you know, what we need to be doing in space. And I said, you realize we do this well that by the time we retire, you know, I'm going to be, hey, let me tell you about space. And you're going to be saying, yeah, I was there last week. It was great, you know, to like come in, see my pictures. We're heading that way. You know, I mean, the, the, the momentum's definitely there. It's just a, uh, it's just a question of, of how fast the train's moving. <laughs> well, I want to talk more about that train and what some of your thoughts are and projections. Um, would you have to take, be up for taking a little break and then we'll continue? Certainly. Okay, cool. All right, so back for part two. Next week, we get further into some of the more philosophical ideals of uh, what it all might mean and humanity's role in it and how far we can go and what might happen in the future. Things like that. All the things I really I like talking about. And Dave David uh, Hitt does as well. Grab some of that Madura Brown Ale from Cigar City if you get a chance. I think we both enjoyed it. And um, you can check out um, photos as well of some of the guests on the on the website, thespacecave.com, if you haven't done that before. Like, what do these people look like? Or where is it? You can see you can see some photos if you head over there. You can also, as I mentioned before, join the Patreon or just donate to the show. If you go to iTunes, um, you can rate and subscribe, and then that helps in the algorithm. People know that the show exists, so if you want to do that, that is great. Um, all right, let's get out of here. Thanks to everyone who supports the show, especially thanks to Dan. A lot of heavy lifting this week, cleaning up the audio from the call with Bob as well as Dave. So thanks, Dan. And this week, the music is not a Dan selection, even though he's on a hot streak. And he has sent me further music that will potentially make the cut, but not this week. As I know I mentioned last week, I was trying to source some music. I couldn't find it. And then I tracked it down through this dude in Canada. And oddly enough, right after I found it, I got an email from someone that said, hey, that music you're looking for, I have some of it. Here you go. So now I had like double the MP3 files, which was pretty fortuitous. So thanks to Raphael who offered the music. But the, this file, this particular file comes, as I mentioned, from a gentleman in Canada who happened to have it. It's really difficult to track down some of these creations that people made long ago. And if you were listening last week, I guess you know that I'm speaking about the Angoras. Alison Rosen's band, they exist, they did create music. The um, I think the, the album was called The Angoras, a self-titled number. And this is a song from that. I feel like this is the most catchy. Maybe this is like playing their, their super hit and I should have gone with a deeper track. I don't know. But I hope you like it. Here's some music from Allison Rosen and The Angoras called Steak Knife. Thanks for stopping by the Space Game.
I wanted we to meet, but I only have a fork and I borrow your steak knife. If I want to rob a nun and I don't have a gun, can I borrow your steak knife? If I want to rob a bank, 